So we're gonna start a brand new series in a moment, but before we do, I feel it is my responsibility as your pastor and shepherd to say something in light of the events on Friday, the overturning of Roe versus Wade after 50 years of federal legislated abortion across the country. And I know, I, I can sense even in the room as we came together today that there's, there's an angst and maybe a lack of clarity of, okay, we're celebrating this, but are we qualifying this? And what about this situation and this? Listen, this is a conversation that requires so much more than a short little statement before the sermon. I wanna acknowledge that. There's no way I can say with this moment or a tweet or with a social media post, everything that needs to be said about such a complicated issue. But as the people of God, we need to be open and available to those conversations. The clarity I wanted to give this morning is the clarity that I've been trying to give our church about controversial issues for years. Remember in January of 2020, we did a sermon series called Grace Truth. And we talked about how somehow Jesus lived his life full of both. 100% grace, love for people, compassion, mercy. 100% truth. There's a standard for how the people of God are called to live their lives that's unwavering based on the tide of the culture. And Jesus, his whole life, holds both. He's at tax collectors, houses, with prostitutes, still upholding the standard in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught, how, how do you teach something that has such a requirement for how the kingdom of God should be run every day, but yet love people in real time with 100% openness? It's possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of you are troubled because you think this is an issue where you have to choose whether or not you support the rights of an unborn baby or the rights of an expectant mom who maybe is in a situation where she's scared out of her mind, maybe a dad who's scared out of his mind. And you think that the two sides of this issue are the choice between, well, they both seem like they need someone to defend them and they both seem like they need a voice behind them. Here's the great news. Where the Holy Spirit is involved, you can be passionate and compassionate about both. And that's what the church of Jesus is called to do today. At ACC, we are kingdom of God, New Testament believers. We are passionate about defending the rights of the unborn. What has happened in the last 50 years in our country has been a genocide. Babies with no opportunity to grow and flourish have been terminated at all kind of varying times during pregnancies and in all kind of inhumane ways. And as a Christian with a conscience, if you believe in the Bible, you do not have an option other than to love and defend the rights of those who cannot speak for themselves. You don't get that option. And so at Auburn Community Church, we speak up and we go, that's not right, it should have never been an option. In fact, it was a God-like reach with power that we get to decide who lives and who dies. It's possible to hold that conviction stern. I want you to know that we are as a church and we always have. It's also possible at the same time to love, honor, and work diligently for the rights of women who are scared and people in our country who need pathways to other options. 
If you're here today, and, and that is your story, I'm gonna talk about that in one second, but I just want this to be known today. The church cannot afford to gloat and beat her chest today. We're not doing that. We're weeping. We're weeping about what has happened, but we're also understanding the weight of this moment. You know the responsibility just shifted, particularly in this state. So the reason why, if you're wondering, why are Christians rejoicing at this? Because we know this is an opportunity for the church and it's not an opportunity for the church to go, 50 years, now our side won. No, it's an opportunity for the church to go, what do we have to do to eradicate this issue through providing finances, through opening our homes, through adoption, through foster care, through more programs, more programs, more funding, more funding. And here's the thing, I'm not saying this on this stage because that happened on Friday. We already are that church. The number of families who have said yes to adoption and foster care, the ministry that was launched in spring of this year called alongside. We want to be a part of turning the foster care system upside down in our community. I believe it can happen in Birmingham and in other places as well, but that was actually launched just a couple of months ago. Here's the message at ACC today. We need more people to get behind that. We need more families to pay attention. We need to send more money in that direction. In fact, if you've ever given money to ACC, you have given toward efforts to love and provide for moms to have a way to raise their kids and for it to be financially reasonable, reasonable and to have community around them for the long haul. Not for a moment, not with a tip on the side, but like the long, hard work of being there. And for the scared women who are out there, I just I want you to know that if the church comes across as gloating and in a way that scares you for your future, you need to know that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to be committed to the rights of the unborn and be committed to building a new culture through the kingdom of God where women know they can raise their babies with hope for a future and the church must stand in that gap. There's a third group that's not getting talked about much this weekend. And it's the group of women and potentially men who have made decisions in the past that they are not proud of. And maybe that shame that was dealt with in a previous season has come back up just through conversations and through an awareness of this. And I know guys, even within our church, who have encouraged abortion, who are reliving moments of shame. And I definitely know women in our church who have come through that and found healing. But this weekend is a major reminder of some of the worst moments in your life. The grace and the compassion of Jesus to meet you right where you are knows no bounds. And we want you to know today, God's heart is for you. He's got your baby. What's amazing is we've had so many different stories at ACC of college girls, of young women who have gotten pregnant, decided to keep their baby. And those are, those are miraculous stories. One of them, we'll probably tell it in a couple of weeks. It was from many years ago at Ham Wilson. She has an abortion appointment for Monday morning and in the sermon, abortion is addressed, she decides not to, and now she's married um, to her boyfriend at the time, and they have a family in Florida, and they're loving, honoring, and serve Jesus, and they think it's the greatest thing ever that God got their attention in one of the, in one of the most needy moments of their lives. It's powerful. But you know what else is powerful? There was a girl who sat in the front row of our church four years ago at the AU Hotel, and her name was Hope, and I didn't know that she came in carrying a secret and a shame that was overshadowing any opportunity she felt like she could have to see God move in her life. 
And we've watched God forgive, restore, and redeem her. And she felt a peace that night. She was like, I'm coming to one church service just to hear. For some reason, uh, some of you are weird about prophetic words and gifts of the Spirit because you need to read Corinthians. But, um, but that night, I just said, I feel like someone's in here. And you need to know that God's got your baby that you aborted. He's got her. And she's on the front row going, that's the only reason why I came. And... That's not the only story, but we've seen story after story after story, not just college girls, but women who made decisions decades ago who have found the grace and the healing of Jesus. I say that across the board to say, you don't have to pick a stance or a side. You do have to embody and project the grace and truth of Jesus as a New Testament follower of the way. We are the kingdom of God, y'all. We don't get the opportunity to choose a political party. You know that, right? In moments like this, you are going to offend people. And I'm watching a lot of our college students and young people at this church, and I know a lot of you are watching through a screen right now. You're struggling because you have grown up with a worldview that was highly framed by others' opinion of you or the loudness of the media or opinions that tell you, this is how we see the world. This is what it looks like to be a human being. And I'm just telling you, as a member of the kingdom of God, you will not fit in in this culture. That's what First Peter is all about. We are in the world, not of the world. You won't fit in with Republicans. You won't fit in with Democrats because you are a citizen of heaven. And for, in the meantime, you gotta fit in in a broken system and pray toward change. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. But you just need to know at ACC, we will never bend the knee to the woke mob or conservative elites or the liberal media. We bend our knees at the throne of King Jesus and King Jesus alone, period, period. That's it. And that's, this is, like what our lives are supposed to look like. Paul says, we are the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. But to those who are perishing, we are the aroma of death. That means that if some of your opinions don't smell like death to a lost, dark and broken world, your opinions probably need to be more formed by this than they are by that. So as a church, too many pastors for too long have been afraid to go there. This is why I'm standing up here. This is what it means to be a shepherd. To people from other churches who may be watching or maybe other pastors, I just want to encourage you. You're called by God to stand up and lead your people right now. Help them understand. You don't have to choose this side or that side. You choose the way of Jesus. You love people. There's ways that you can get involved. If you wanna get involved with Alongside, I think you can text Alongside to 4420. We have a list of organizations that we support. And when I say we support, I mean, we support. We'll show you. People say, put your money where your mouth is. And I'm like, we, we do. I promise you, we do. If you wanna give more, we can point you toward them. If you wanna get involved here, let's not be a church that makes a statement on the Sunday after a ruling goes down. Let's be the church that makes a statement for years to come that the kingdom of God is bringing change in this country like never before. Last thing I'll say about this, like you said last thing multiple times. We, you're allowed to disagree about the how. How does the kingdom of God do 
the very thing that I just articulated. We, we can disagree without dishonoring one another. I'm not saying that a certain framework or opinion based on a background needs to be everyone's opinion, but I am saying there's some non-negotiables, but there's wiggle room in conversation. Let's, let's not make this a hateful shouting match back and forth, but let's be the people of God. Who, we, we take the hate. We, we take the difficulty. We expect it from the world. I just this weekend did not expect Christians to be so underdeveloped in their views about an issue. We are 100% grace and 100% truth. Let me pray before we open the word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Uh, I pray that that was clear and compassionate. I pray that if you would have been here this morning, you would have said the same thing. But I know, God, there's things that I may have said where I missed it or I could have said more about this or could have said this softer or louder. And I just pray your grace and your Holy Spirit over all of that. God, somehow help us to tune our hearts to your word today. God, the church is the space where we get to see the kingdom of God on display. This is the hope of the world. So God, would you move through churches across this country and across the world today? Would you move through me as I speak now? We love you so much, God. I pray for the moms who are scared. I pray for the future of our country and those who don't feel like they have a voice. God, would we illuminate the pain that is present in so many today? Would we be a church that cares enough to have a conversation and at the same time stands in the gap for those who can't speak for themselves? Please fill us, God. Raise up leaders who are bold. Raise up a church that wants to make a difference and provide education and provide funding and provide resources. God, help us to do our part. We can't do it all. But from our little corner of Alabama, we can stand in the gap and we can make a dent for the glory of God. Empower us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, um, I wasn't planning on carrying that into my first Sunday back after sabbatical. I was going to tell you all before sabbatical, one of my fears was that something like that was going to happen while I was gone, and then I was going to have to come back and say something. And so it's, it's hard for me, and it's been weighing on me. What is God calling me to share? And, and I just shared a lot of that. I was prayed up and ready to go. But I, I want to be a human being in front of you. I need like a couple seconds just to catch my breath and set my mind on the word of God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at somebody next to you and just tell them two things that you're thankful for that you haven't, you haven't really said out loud lately. Let's just have a moment of thanksgiving and take a breath after such an intense moment before we hear from the word of God. Two things you're thankful for. One, two, three, go. Go, go. Thanksgiving in the house of God. What were you thankful for? Your wife. Yeah, you better say that. She's right there. It's great. Hey, we're going to start a brand new sermon series through the New Testament letter called Second Peter. Last summer, we did First Peter, and I thought it would be fitting. Okay, we've got this short letter, Second Peter, right after that. This, 
this would be really good if we finished Peter's thoughts, but Second Peter is very different than First Peter. First Peter is about being in the world, but not of the world. It's to disperse Christians all over the world who are learning to mix their faith in Jesus with a culture that doesn't accept faith in Jesus. And if ever there was a letter that goes hand in hand with what I just said a second ago, it's probably First Peter. But Second Peter is so different. In fact, a lot of scholars argue Second Peter was not written by Peter. It had to be written by somebody else because it's so different than his first letter. But I actually believe the differences are because of a difference in context. First Peter is written as a pastoral epistle that goes, hey, this is how the church functions. These are the people we're called to be. Second Peter is Peter's last letter. He says in chapter one, I know I'm about to die, point blank. He's in Rome under Emperor Nero, who tradition tells us executed Peter. He was crucified upside down. He chose to be upside down because he said he was unworthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. And this is right before that. And this is Peter's final warnings and encouragements for the people of God before he dies. And I want to preface this whole series by saying this. These warnings and encouragements are super intense. It, as you read it and as we study it, it's going to be like, whoa, just go ahead and say that. And that, and that, and that. Like the warnings are heavy. But equally as heavy are his encouragements and the best encouragement in all of Second Peter is what we're going to be talking about from the Word of God today. I'm so ready to preach this message to you. Did you bring your Bible? Did you bring your Bible? All of our locations. Hold them up right where you are. Okay, I got a question that requires some biblical knowledge to answer it. Hold it up high. I want to ask, quick question, just survey. Who would you rather have coffee with, Peter or Paul? Okay, keep them up. Keep in mind, Peter, very close to Jesus, probably has stories that you've never heard from the three and a half year period. Paul <laughs> wrote Romans, okay? So this is a tough choice. I just, want to get, I just want to get an idea. If you would say, I'd rather have coffee with Peter, keep your Bible up. All of our locations, keep your Bible up. <gasps> Peter's losing people. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Apostle Paul, Bible up. Paul wins. Wow. Let us know at all the other locations. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Somebody said Cephas over here, throwing down his, uh, his Greek name. That's great. We're going to read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I believe God's going to use this to speak in a powerful way. As great as the Apostle Paul's teaching is, you got to give Peter some credit. This is the main voice to the church in Jerusalem, the one who preached on Pentecost, the one who denied Jesus the night before he died, but also the one who gave the original confession that Jesus is the Christ, in which Jesus said, that is the confession that my church will be built on, and that is why your name is Petros, Peter, which means rock. And so at the very beginning, when you hear his name, there could be a sermon in just him naming who he is, but keep in mind, this is at the end of his life. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, if you're there, say I'm there. Man, I've missed that. Here we go. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, 
having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Part one of 2 Peter is titled, Empowered by Grace. Empowered by Grace. Look at somebody next to you, tell them, I've got the power. I've got the power. Say it. I've got the power. Come on. So typically, when we talk about the grace of God in church, there's almost a synonymous reaction in our brains to think about forgiveness. Part of that's healthy because this is a big deal that through the blood of Jesus, we can be forgiven and reconciled to a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. Forgiveness is awesome. And God's grace, openly and readily available to anyone and everyone who calls, is abundant. But I feel like in our theology, and particularly in our practice, many of us have an abundance in forgiveness, but a scarcity in power. And so when we think of grace, we think, my sins have been canceled, but we don't think about the power we have to live our daily lives on mission for the glory of God. We've equated grace as a cancel out of everything we've ever done to offend God, everything about our sinful nature that stands to keep us from an eternal life in heaven forever, but we don't think about grace that fills us on a daily basis with the power to live out the Christian life. And here's the news of 2 Peter chapter 1 and the news that I came to announce today. God has not only graced you with forgiveness for your sins, he's also graced you with knowledge and power to walk in the divine nature right here and right now. These are promises that are not for heaven one day. These are promises that are available for you and for me today. Here's a more simple way of saying everything I just said. Jesus has done more than you're giving him credit for. He has done more than save you from your sin and get you to heaven. He has done more than offer you the love and forgiveness that is so awesome to celebrate and we should sing about it and we should remember it and we should live in it. But Jesus has also given you power. And the tension I feel today is that the vast majority of us have gotten so good at grabbing the grace of God for the sake of forgiveness, but grabbing the grace of God for the empowerment to live your life is a foreign language for most of the Christians in this room and watching online. And I want to teach you today, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-11, through 11, is the promise that you need to unlock the empowering grace of God. Let's study it. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, as I said, you could preach a whole sermon on what what that name means and all of that. Simon's previous name, Peter's new name given by Jesus, leader in the church. But I want to talk about the fact that he calls himself a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting combination of two words. That word servant in Greek is the word doulos. It means bond servant. It means I willfully choose to submit myself under the lordship of one. And then the word apostle is about authority. So you see what he's doing there. He's, he's putting on one side a word that means submission and humility and a word that means authority and power. 
And he's going, I'm a servant first and foremost of Jesus Christ. And because I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, he has appointed me to be an apostle, which is a special office of leadership in the local church to give instruction. Why does Peter feel this way about himself? Because this is the type of leadership that was modeled for him by Jesus firsthand. Jesus, the one who's Lord of all, who's the rabbi, who's the teacher, washes the feet of the disciples and says, you go and do likewise. The role of leadership in the church is not to lord over people the power that's been entrusted to you. It's to humbly serve and equip the saints for the works of ministry. How beautiful was it having the elders on stage last week who are up here to do that very thing for you. And we want you to know the culture of this church is one where we wanna model that. Yes, God gives authority to people to lead, but at the same time, the presence of authority is for the sake of service, not for the sake of lording a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Gotta love this. Peter identifies his audience. He says, I'm, I'm writing this letter to believers in Jesus who are there. I'm not writing this to agnostics who don't believe. I'm not writing this to people who are on the fence and need to be pushed over. I'm writing this to people who already believe. And I just thought that that part of it was so important given the events of this week to just keep in mind that the church should understand truths about God that look like a foreign language to people who don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And Peter understands this. And you're gonna see his language throughout the letter and you're gonna be bothered by some of it. And you're gonna go, really? You can say something that harsh? But he's operating from the foundational point of you've already come to faith in Jesus. You already believe. You've already committed yourself to what it means to be a follower of Christ. So I'm able to push you a little more because I understand you're already in the family. I'm not trying to convince you to be in the family. So remember that throughout as we're reading it. But then he says this. This is not a throwaway line. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is not a throwaway line. Peter's going, I want grace and peace to abound through this word, knowledge something about our knowledge of God that's available to us today by the power of the Holy Spirit that makes grace and peace abound. And now we're about to read the best verses in all of 2 Peter. And I, I don't like doing that at the very beginning because I want you to come back, but I can't lie to you. This is the best part and it's not even close. Verses three through four are in my list. I, I would call it my arsenal of verses that I go to daily and weekly. Do you have, as you're following Jesus, do you have certain verses that you think about more than others? Like just a few that you're like, uh, in a given day, when frustrations hit, when moments come up, I gotta reach back for my promises of God that are kind of readily available and always on my mind and heart. Second Peter 1, three through four, one of those for me. I'll memorize this a long time ago. Think about it often. It just helps me again and again. In fact, when anyone quotes Second Peter, my mind immediately goes to this verse. So as we read what we're about to read, we're going to squeeze everything we can out of these two verses, hit on the back end of this passage a little bit next week. But this is where we're really going to focus. Y'all look and open your mind. Holy Spirit reveal. Here we go. His, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. If you have ESV, it's translated a little better. It's for life and godliness. Through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So that's 
a lot of thoughts being translated out of Greek into English, but diamonds of promises packed into two verses that I just want to teach and, and look at explicitly. First part, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That is a promise from God that as a believer in Jesus, you have all that you need from the Holy Spirit to obey God and to live the life Jesus died and rose for you to live. What is life and godliness? That points to spirituality and morality. You have everything you need to live this adventure of a life in the kingdom of God. You have everything you need to obey God from a standard of holiness. You have been empowered with a grace that doesn't just save you, that sustains you in real time. Here's how it works. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So how do I get access to the divine power? There's something about my knowledge. There's something about my thinking that taps me into the divine power, which he has given me by his own glory and goodness. So why did God do the thing that Peter's describing? Because he's that awesome and that kind. The reason why you've received what I'm preaching today is because God's better than you think he is. He's amazingly glorious, but he is good to you and has included you into the story. And he says, through these, his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Okay, connect great and precious promises with through our knowledge. It's hard to see that because they're so far separated in the passage, but through our knowledge of what? His very great and precious promises that he's given to us by his glory and goodness. Another translation says his excellence so that through your knowledge of the promises of God, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. This is saying that as with knowledge, you hold on to the promises of God that are now true over you, there's a switch that happens. You are delivered from a sinful nature that had you enslaved to evil desires into a divine nature that now has you enslaved to what the Holy Spirit desires. And this shift happens through knowledge. Now, as I've read these verses over the years and studied and studied and studied, I thought, okay, if I were to write an English version of this sentence that, that's maybe able to discern exactly what's being told to you better. I wrote it, and I wrote it in three lines, but it's, it's, it's all one sentence. Here's what Peter is saying, and I'll just read this. This is my words. Our knowledge of what God has done in Jesus delivers us from corruption caused by evil desires into a divine nature we can participate in right now. That's what those verses mean. Our knowledge of what God has done in Jesus delivers us from corruption caused by evil desires into a divine nature we can participate in right now. There's two natures talked about in the scriptures, sinful nature and divine nature. When Jesus died to save you from sin, he did not just die to save you from the things that you do. He died and rose again to deliver you from a condition you were born into. The sinful nature corrupts everything about human beings and is the reason for every evil, every injustice, and every part of us that ultimately leads to death. And what Peter's arguing is that a Christian, when they receive the Holy Spirit, they have this option. They can be delivered from the slavery of evil desires that hold them captive on the inside into a new way of life called the divine nature. But that deliverance is dependent on a choice that they make about their own knowledge. And the promise is, everybody look up here, don't miss this, because I know I just, that's a deep truth. And I just taught a lot. The promise is this. You have all that you need right now if you are in Christ. It's in you right now. 
It just needs to be awakened through knowledge. And one of the things that frustrates me in my own thinking continually that I think has seeped out into a lot of believers in our church is that we become friends with a scarcity mentality about the resources that have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And we become friends because of our commitment to correct theological doctrine. It's going to be deep. Pay pay close attention. We've gotten really good as a church at being able to sense when the Bible is being used as a means for making people feel good and when the Bible is being taught based on what the writers intended as the truth of the word of God. A lot of people are, you actually, a lot of you are drawn to this church because we don't shy away from the hard things. We believe scriptures are true and that's great. But what I found to be true about people who do that, because I know this is true about me, is we start to understand the depths of our sinful nature in a way that a lot of surface level Christians aren't really familiar with. And we go, man, I'm like way more sinful than I realized. Like, I'm, I don't just do bad things every once in a while. I am a walking mistake waiting to happen without the grace of God. And so I'm just like, I'm so depraved and I'm deprived of what I need if God doesn't come through. I know I'm sinful. I know I'll do that. I know I think that. I know, whoa. And we become so aware of our sinful nature. Well, then God does this work by the Holy Spirit. But because we become committed to this intellectual view of the scriptures, we start to believe truths that are actually private heresies. Okay, that's Paul David Tripp's language that I'm borrowing. Private heresy is when you preach something in your own mind that you believe to be gospel that's actually something the enemy would love for you to say to yourself. So you and I have gotten really good at, because we believe in the grace of God and because we believe that we're fallen so far away from God, we're telling ourselves things and making agreements with lies that are the opposite of what Peter's teaching here. Namely, three main lies. The first one is this. You can't. Many of us operate under the weight of a voice that says this, and we think it's spiritual. You can't. You don't have the ability to obey God. You can't speak up for your faith. You can't. You don't have the capacity. You're so sinful. You just don't get it. But here's the thing. When Scripture defines sin... According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talks about sexual immorality and he talks about theft and he talks about some of these things in the sin nature that live in the inside of you. But then on the back end of that verse, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You can't live as a Christian in the identity of who you used to be in the sinful nature. And some of you, because you know your Bible, you're going, yeah, I know I can't. I know I'm just a sinner who falls short of the glory of God. No, that sentence doesn't have a period, it has a comma. And they've been justified freely by his what? Grace. The grace that empowers you to rise up above your inability and your incapability and go, wait, 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 I can taste a whole new realm of living. No, it's not you can't. It's Jesus did, and now you can by the power of the Holy Spirit. The other one that's even more dangerous is you won't. If you've been following Jesus for a while, you start hearing voices that say, you've had good intentions before, but you know what you're bent to do. You won't. You won't step up. You won't be consistent. You'll be in it for a week and move on with it. You won't, you won't, you won't. And once again, you think this is truth. You think it's you making an agreement about how sinful you are and being humble. It's not. It's you preaching private heresy under the guise of spirituality. It's the devil getting through your voice is what it is. And what you've got to learn to confront is go, no, 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 no. No matter what my past says about me, Every single day is a new opportunity for you to step into the life Jesus died and rose for you to live. It's not you can't. It's not you won't. And then the last one, you're not. 
That voice drives so many of us on the basis of comparison. You're not him. You're not a saint. You're not a pastor. You're not a leader. You're not your sister. You're not, you're not, you're not. And so what we do is we end up measuring ourselves based on this voice that tells us to compare our spiritual journey to other people that seem to be ahead of us based on externals, not recognizing that the only power that can come through a believer and get them into this divine nature that's being talked about is the power of the Holy Spirit that is yours and it is mine when we connect our knowledge to the promises of God. And here's the promise of 2 Peter evaporating all of these lies. You always have everything you need to do what God called you to do today. You always have everything you need to do what God called you to do today. And to believe otherwise is to belittle the grace of God. Yes, God's grace saves you and forgives you from sin. Celebrate that forever. But the grace of God empowers you today. God has never called you to something without gracing you with the capability to walk in it. And faith, faith is not an intellectual agreement to something written on a page. Faith is taking a step of belief on the basis that what was written is actually true. So faith in 2 Peter chapter 1 is stepping and walking and talking and making an effort like what God said was actually true. This is going to sound like heresy, but Peter wrote it, so you can't be. Let me read this to you. For this reason, make every effort. Wait, What? I thought it was about grace. I thought grace was opposed to effort. No, no, no. Dallas Willard said, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Make like a little bit of effort, like every effort that you possibly can, I want you to put in work to access this power. To do what? To add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. That last line is like forgetting that they have been baptized. Baptism is a symbol of the cleansing away of sin. Peter says people who don't put in the effort related to their faith are like people who forget that they've been washed and they have a new identity in the family of God. You do not walk according to your former identity. You get a new one, and that new identity causes you to produce fruit with your life. I don't have time to get into all the words that are mentioned. Here's a line I want you to see. These things, self-control, perseverance, knowledge, godliness, all these things, great, great words. We could preach sermons on each one. But I want you to see this. They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That verse is encouraging, but it's also discouraging. It means that there is a knowledge of God that is ineffective and unproductive. There is a Christianity that is ineffective and unproductive. It's possible to believe in Jesus, to be at church today, and to look at your life and go, I don't see any fruit of God working and moving and doing in and through me what's written about in the scriptures. And I'm not saying look based on external things and compare yourself to other people, but I am saying make an honest assessment of your life. Do you see these things growing? And do you, if the divine nature of God has been promised to you, can you point to any evidence of that? 
if you're at ACC and you've been here for a while and you're wondering, what is the difference between me and some of the Christians in this room who are seeing God reach people through their lives, who are like living on mission and waking up in the morning with a joy and a, a, a sense of courage to go and live out this life? Like, what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? You're not going to like the answer. Effort. Like there's people who are actually putting in the work in their relationship with God. But watch this. It's not an effort in our will or emotions. It's an effort in our mind. It's about knowledge. See, in, in the Christian life, we make all of our efforts about, okay, I'm going to do this different. Or worse yet, we make our efforts about manipulating and changing emotion. And we go, I'm just going to feel God. I'm just going to listen to Bethel. I'm just going to listen to this song. I'm going to listen to this whatever, whatever. Like, I'm going to make God make me feel something. But what Peter is prescribing is a brand new knowledge. We'll put this on the screen. If the source is divine power, the means is the knowledge of God. And I'm almost done. Y'all stay with me. This is my only point, okay? Seriously, I'm almost done. The so- <laughs> Potentially. The source is divine power. The means is the knowledge of God. So you, you can't grab the divine power of God for yourself. This is a gift. That's what the word grace means, by the way. God is gifting you with an empowerment. And 2 Peter is saying, you got this if you're in Christ. You got this as a believer in Jesus. That's the source. But what's the means? Knowledge of God. The means is not more effort. The means is not an alarm clock. The means is not social media settings. The means is not a certain amount of days of fasting. All those things are great. The means is a level of knowledge of God. And it's the faith to believe and overthrow a scarcity mentality that's taking so many people captive. So one of the many revelations on sabbatical was that I have a problem with a scarcity mentality. And the problem with having a messed up mindset is that your mindset becomes your reality over time. If you choose to believe that you're exhausted and depleted, you probably will be. If you choose to believe that you're giving more than you're getting, if you choose to believe in your mind that they're wrong and you're right, if you choose to believe that you're entitled and they owe you if, you, if you make these mental agreements in your mind, you'll start living in the reality of what your mind agreed to. So it's been no secret. I've gotten in front of y'all for years and been like, hey, I'm, I'm noticing this depletion in my soul and I'm a little tired and I'm trying to get fed in my time with God, but there's just so many responsibilities to leading this and so much tension and turmoil, especially with 2020 being behind me. And I'm like, I got to I, I got to figure this out. And what happened to me over time is I made mental agreements with things that I thought were just the product of my circumstances. I thought they were just, well, this is how it is to live in a sinful world. I didn't know how many agreements I had made in my mind with lies. And 2 Peter 1 flies in the face of a scarcity mindset and says, I know it feels like you don't have what you need. I promise you do. Agree with me again. Agree to the promises of God. Once again, you have all that you need to do what you've been called to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm noticing that when I willfully make the agreement in my mind that what God has written in his word is enough for me today, I start to live into it over time. I was listening to a, a podcast from a clinical psychologist during my time away and she was talking about the anxiety epidemic that we talk about so often here. That people are depressed, that people are disconnected and disoriented and, and you could talk about statistics and age groups and, and man, we are anxious. We are worried, we are freaking out. 
But she said the problem with a lot of counseling related to anxiety is that a lot of counseling is about teaching the symptomatic problem of emotions to change. So when you get anxious, what, what do you do? You view your anxiety as the problem. You're going, oh no, here it comes, here it comes, all these feelings that I need to fight. And she said the problem with that is you can't control and manage feelings. You can control and manage thoughts that guide feelings. So if you believe that you can control your emotions, let me just do an experiment for you real quick. If right now, your favorite person who you have ever met in life, just whoever, think of someone who's not here today. Let's say they walk through the door. Let's say it's, it's, it's someone who you've lost, who you love, who passed away. You haven't seen them for a long time. Maybe you've lost touch. If they walked through that door right now and you turned around and saw them, what would you feel instantly? What would you feel? Part of you would rise up that you didn't like try to get that part of you to rise up. You're just, it's just there because they're right there, right? Now, in, in the same breath, think of someone, once again, outside of this room, they're right next to you right now. This could be really awkward. Like, like your least favorite person in the world, okay? Person who, it would, there's a ton of relational tension. Like if they walked in, it would be awkward and everybody knows it. Think about that. If they walked in right now, what would you feel? Now, the difference between those two things is not a difference that you can control or manipulate. It's not something that you can go, okay, don't feel that level of excitement when the person I love comes in or don't feel that anxiousness. And that. No, it just happened to you because emotions get sent based on circumstances. But here's the good news. Emotions are guided by thoughts. And if you learn to aim your thoughts at the promises of God, you will learn to over time guide your emotions to overflow with affection for Jesus. I am talking about memorizing verses, but I'm not. You have to learn how to access the divine power by rehearsing a knowledge of God. So how I do it is I've gotten a little bit better at noticing when I'm in the flesh. I notice when selfishness is coming, when bitterness is coming, when tiredness is hitting, when I'm going, okay, I gotta do something, I gotta do something. So for me, it's putting on AirPods, noise cancellation mode in effect, and hearing promises of God sung and nodding my head and saying them out loud again. And all of a sudden, when I reattach my mind to what scripture says is true about me, I'm not gauging my state in my relationship with God on the basis of my circumstances. I rooted in the promises and now I'm walking with divine power. Divine power to what? To walk in the Holy Spirit. I'm not walking by people going, they're in my way, I have a lot to do today. I'm walking by people seeing needs and speaking straight into them. I'm a conduit of the power and the presence of God simply because in my knowledge, I access the divine power that is mine in Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you, if you start to gratify the desires of the spirit over the desires of the flesh, you will notice that living the life Jesus prescribes for us, although it seems hard, although for many people it seems legalistic, although for many people it seems boring, I'm telling you, this is the adventure you were born for. And as you feed those desires and quench them, it only makes for deeper desire. You start watching people's lives change because of things that you've said. Start watching your life, your marriage, your kids, your friends change. And all around you, you're going, I'm loving this and I want some more of Jesus. I have not figured everything out, but I have tasted a hint of the life I'm describing to you. And I'm telling you, I want that so much more than any pleasure of sin that this world has to offer. It's yours in Jesus, but it happens based on the knowledge of God. 
What do you have to take your focus off of? And what do you have to put your focus on in order to reconnect your knowledge to the precious promises of God? I can't answer that for you, but you got time to answer that for yourself. Every Sunday at ACC, we've been taking communion and we're gonna do that once more right now. And I never want this moment to become routine. We're doing right now the very thing that I'm prescribing and that really Peter is prescribing in this passage. You can get your communion elements out now. If you didn't get one, you can raise your hand at whatever location you're at. We'll bring you some. If you're not a believer in Jesus, this is a moment to just sit and reflect. But if you are, this is where we join the table where Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood shed for you the night before he died. We got one guy in the back row. He's like, I hope somebody sees me. I see you, bro. See that hand. Um, got really good at that at youth retreats. Um, but hey, communion, y'all. The precious promises of God. If you need one thing about the Bible to meditate on over and above anything else in a given moment when you go, okay, what, what am I fixing my mind on? Communion is your reminder, the body and the blood. That Jesus' body, broken for humanity to have a right relationship with God and with one another. A whole new humanity was formed by the teachings, life, and death, and resurrection of this man who we call the Son of God. And his body was broken for us. So that what? So that your body could live forever in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Jesus. And the blood. There is nothing anyone has ever carried into a church seeking Jesus that the blood of Jesus can't wipe away and make white as snow in a split second. I, I have no idea what you're carrying today, but the last six weeks for me, more than it was like a relaxing time away, it was exposing of a lot of sin. And I'm telling you, hearing the voice of God quietly whisper, that he's got you, that he's for you, that you're washed, that you're clean, that there's newness, every taste of the cup washed new in the sight of God. You are forgiven. So in this moment, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're going back to the source, divine power. You're empowered by grace. How do we get it? Through the knowledge of God. We'll take communion. We'll set our minds, fix our eyes on Jesus. Husbands, as always, pray over your wives. Let's take a time to reflect. And they're even... I think they're gonna sing a soft song over this moment. Just sit and reflect for a second and then we'll sing to finish this gathering in just one second. Go into communion right now.